This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss with the author, Dr. Haley Fisher-Wright, her recently published work, Back to Balance, The Art, Science, and Business of Medicine. Dr. Wright, welcome to the program. Thank you, David. I appreciate the invitation. Dr. Wright's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, as the title suggests, Dr. Wright's work argues healthcare works best when the art, science, and business of medical care are allowed to work in balance with one another. However, today, Dr. Wright states the art of doctoring is dying because the art, science, and business of medicine no longer work in balance or uh, with one another. The art in the practice of medicine is now, Dr. Wright states, supplanted or controlled by science and business. The art of medicine today is on, she states, life support. As a result, Dr. Wright argues, patients are not valued or heard as they should be. And for physicians, the initials MD today stand for miserable doctor. So with that as background, uh, Dr. Wright, let me first ask, how do you define art in healthcare delivery? I think succinctly put, what we're talking about are the soft skills. So it's the relationship between the provider and the patient or the physician and the patient specifically. It's also those soft, intuitive skills that you develop after having a relationship with patients and having experience, a wealth of experience, and with your basically being able to leverage off your colleagues as well. So it's the things that you can't get from a computer or WebMD, or, you know, online, or things like that. These are intangibles that really exist that, as we define, healthcare is what occurs really fundamentally when a patient and a physician are in a room. So it's really uh, the qualities of interaction or the relationship. Absolutely. Okay. But I think, uh, and the experience as well, you cannot underestimate the experience of a physician in an engaged relationship. It's, it's the two, how they really act symbiotically together. Right, and from a more academic perspective, there's a, a fair amount, if not vast amount, of uh, research on the therapeutic relationship or the bond uh, between the physician and the patient. You know, Rogers is the healing relationship, whole person care, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure you would agree. Absolutely. There's a wealth of information. And in fairness, I didn't feel like that because there's so much research and literature on it. It didn't need to be repeated by me. So we didn't put all that background into the book. Okay, thank you. So let's uh, move on. Uh, You're critical of several aspects of healthcare delivery or as healthcare is delivered today. For example, you discuss uh, evidence-based medicine, quality measurement, and health information technology. Um, you write, for example, uh, there oftentimes are too many evidence guidelines, protocols, and checklists. Quality is getting in the way of producing the best results, and physicians spend too much time on and too much time with electronic medical records. 
Uh, I should note I'm very familiar with these complaints. For example, I think most people, if not everyone, would agree we have too many process uh, versus outcome quality measures. That said, I have this general question. Um, clinicians, uh, physicians, mid-levels, and others uh, oftentimes, of course, make these comments on these three elements amongst others. Though my question generally is, every industry uh, employs uh, vast amounts of data, measurement abounds, and IT use is pervasive. So my question is, how, uh, how is it that in the healthcare industry uh, we continue to struggle uh, to effectively and efficiently adopt these tools? Absolutely. So I think we have to really stand back and take a look at what we want out of these tools. And I think that's where it gets very muddy. Because if you take a look at, for example, healthcare IT, really the big rise in healthcare IT, even though the driver was to give a portable medical record to the patient, Really what has driven healthcare IT is the business analytics behind it. And really, for, for lack of a better word, it's payment and policy. So from that sam standpoint, there's multiple masters who have each engaged in multiple processes to make sure that their stakeholders are being served. And that creates a tapestry of inefficiencies. And then given that, that a lot of that has happened over time, there have been new players into the businesses where those inefficiencies have taken hold that have created value-based businesses for healthcare when in those spaces of inefficiency. So it's kind of, we keep basically, it's almost like um, trying to build sandcastles with the ocean coming in regards to this. What I advocate in the book and it, it cuts across out in space medicine, healthcare, technology, quality, is that we actually need to take a breath. And, you know, David, you point out that I'm critical, but the thing I really need to point out is I'm optimistic that there's actually some really simple solutions to these things, but we need to be willing to take a breath and actually ask ourselves the crucial question of what do we want? And then we need to build the processes that get us to that outcome. And that's what we haven't done. We keep iterating on processes that already exist as opposed to being willing to surrender what we have and start fresh. You know, your what do you want? When I was reading this book, uh, the idea that came to me, and this is the famous line that we have in this country, uh, endlessly improving means uh, without regard of what goal or ends we're trying uh, to achieve. The other idea that I got, uh, and would you say this is fair, that a lot of this is really from the physician's perspective in context of the art of medicine, a distraction. Would you agree with that? I, I would. And um, I think you bring up a brilliant point. It's really interesting. In healthcare, particularly for my board, for my organization, I'm often being asked, well, what is the best process? Well, in all fairness, if we're building best process off of best process, really what we've condemned ourselves to is, is actually mediocrity. Because what we're saying is this is the best process, so we'll build on top of that, as opposed to being really willing to groundbreak and innovate from scratch, identifying the problem, identifying possible solutions, and then building to, towards that outcomes. And, you know... That, I think, is one of the challenges that we have with our processes in healthcare alone, especially given that we aren't being efficient with our outcomes. 
Okay, okay, thank you. Let me just uh, note one other large uh, subject, and and I'll, I'll be more careful here and say um, you don't possibly uh, limit it to a criticism. Uh, you do at least point out the, the flaws of it, and that's uh, the movement towards pay for performance or pay for value. So, yeah. so similarly, uh, you uh, let's just say assess uh, financial incentive care, or, or skeptical rather, uh, in your assessment of the merits of financial incentive care to improve quality and reduce spending growth. For example, you say you cannot use money uh, to force compliance and that pay for performance uh, doesn't pay necessarily, rather it, and I'm quoting, uh, may kill motivation. I'm not going to assume you would go so far as to say these are non-starters or that we should abandon what are termed now alternative payment models, but how do we get a better p handle on financial incentives? Absolutely. You know, uh, and David, thank you for bringing this up. And it's actually something that's really near and dear to my heart. So as the CEO that represents the business of medical group practice, and our survey is the number one survey for physician compensation in the United States, I would be a very poor CEO if I said, let's abandon all pay for performance. But I think we have to take a, you know, as I've been advocating throughout this podcast, take a step back and say, what are we really trying to incentivize in pay for performance? We all agree, regardless of who you are, where you come from, if you're in healthcare, we all agree we need lower cost care, higher quality, more patient satisfaction, and honestly, we need our physicians to be more satisfied with, with what they're doing as well. You take a look at pay per, for performance models, which are traditionally between 5 and 15% of a physician's compensation, and what we know economists tell us over and over again is if it's, if it's less than 10%, that is not going to change behavior. I'd like to point out the example Geisinger just did away with. They were one of the first institutions to, to put in a paper performance quality metric uh, into physicians' compensation, and they've actually just eradicated it. And the reason why is they recognize, number one, it wasn't driving performance. It didn't change behavior. You don't change someone's behavior with 2 to 5%. But what they also recognize is how they're going to get for much better value for their patients and for themselves is that they need to create a, a culture of collaboration and a, and a culture of excellence. And that is a cultural imperative, not an individual. So in when they do assessments of individuals, that will be part of a performance review. But they're now, they're now actually looking at it as a holistic entity, and, I, and that is something that I think is going to serve as a great model for us to look at paper performance in that methodology as opposed to how we traditionally think of it. Thank you. I'll mention beyond Geisinger, you're probably aware of the National Health Service, which got into the paper performance game earlier in the 90s. They similarly have reeled in uh, their incentive contracts uh, substantially. Let's go to uh, solutions here. Yeah. Um, two uh, examples, amongst others, uh, you provide. First is uh, Rushika Fernandopoul out of Boston, his IORA group. The other you yes. discuss is Virginia Mason. You describe how they've been able to redesign their practice patterns to, in some, rebalance the art uh, with the business. Uh, let's limit it to the business of medicine. Um, so my question is, leaving aside what they did, uh, my question is, 
how and what explains their ability uh, to do this, to be successful, to rebalance art and business? Yeah, um, <laughs> so let me let me tell a little bit about Rushika Fernando Pulley with Ira Health. Rushika was a physician who was dissatisfied and knew he could do better. Uh, and, and that was basically, that was the number one driver. I, we can do better. We can do better for our patients. We can do this less extensively. We can do this with a higher satisfaction. So instead of going tucking into a health system or into his practice and saying, how do we do this better? What incremental change? He and his partner got together one weekend in Boston and basically said, if we were to blow up the health system, what parts of it would we bring back or how would we do this so that we can do a much better job and do the right thing? Not, not what we do now or iterate on what we do now, but what's the right thing to do? And that was really the genesis of his model. I'm, I'm pretty sure there were adult beverages in there, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, but that was just starting from scratch. In Virginia Mason, I think that's another really interesting story because right now they are definitely held up as one of the institutions of, of the highest quality. Um, and they have a, you know, excellent physician leadership with uh, Dr. Gary Kaplan. Um, but they weren't always that way. And so if, when they were really struggling to provide good quality, what does good quality look like? What does a culture of excellence look like? They also had to go back from scratch, and they did something incredibly radical, and I talk about it extensively in the book. They actually went to the patients, and instead of as a group of physicians, and I put myself in that category, saying, I know what patients want, and here's what we need to do. What they did is they actually did focus groups and interviews and brought patients in to ask them, what do you want? How does this play out? How do you experience this? And they were actually quite surprised with the outcomes that they received um, in, a, in both a positive way and a negative way because uh, they would have assumed that they knew everything there was to know about patients. I mean, we've been seeing patients forever, so we must know how this works. But it wasn't until they actually started talking to people. They understood how they could actually work with people to get the outcomes that they needed. Okay, thank you. Let me press you on this. In, in your mind, or, in as, or as you understand these organizations, yeah. what is it exactly that they do better? I think they have a willingness to learn, grow, and change. I think they have a flexible culture that is, that is excited by the opportunities to do that as opposed to resistant for those challenges. Okay, okay. Um, throughout the book, or as I read, uh, read through the book, I kept waiting to see mention of concierge medicine. You do mention it, also direct primary care, uh, although it's lar these are largely just mentions. So I'm very mm -hmm. curious, uh, and I think most people have a general sense of how these models differ. So I, I kept waiting for mention because I thought you might point to them as solutions, but you don't. You, you, you do just mention them. So my question is, are they solutions uh, in your mind? Of course, they come uh, certainly with their imperfections. I, so I, I, so it's funny that you bring this up, David. I, I, one of the, a couple of people when I sent it for critique had brought up, you don't bring up compiage medicine. And basically in 
in reviewing all the different practices. So my organization represents over 18,000 different types, different individual medical practices. Concierge medicine is not a large percentage. It's actually a really small percentage of our practices. But the other thing is it's unless it's really not necessarily um, a way to fix our healthcare system because it's only accessible to the few that have the financial resources. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to offer it as a solution um, because actually if you compare what the average American pays for their healthcare relative to the rest of the world, we're already paying more than everybody else. So I didn't want to advocate to pay even more on top of that. Right, and just to note, concierge is based on the idea that physicians can spend more time because patients are paying them a premium, so they substantially Correct. lower their uh, patient panels uh, as much as, in some instances, uh, two-thirds. So my going out question would be, in sum, and the word that, I, that came to my mind was, you're largely in sum asking that we reset uh, care delivery, think more uh, critically about what we're trying to achieve instead, again, of being driven, as I noted previously, by endlessly improving means at the expense of, and the phrase continues, carelessly examined ends. So what would be, so I'm in D.C., my focus typically is federal policy, though we know, of course, it's all local. Uh, what would you mm-hmm. say are the two or three things that sort of recorrect or, or establish or reestablish a better balance between uh, art, science, and medicine? So I think we need to recognize that policy on the federal level is not going to solve health care issue. Our policy towards health care is really a financial policy, mm-hmm. not a health policy. So what, so number one thing I would advocate is that we start to look at correcting our health care system from the bottom up. Number two, I think we need to, to be disciplined about our innovation. So we've allowed healthcare IT to come in and it's brought both the best and the worst to us, meaning that what we have are tech entrepreneurs that are brilliant and passionate, but they haven't solved the problems we have. What they've brought is new technology. Healthcare needs, so number two, healthcare needs to learn how to effectively partner with healthcare, not to remove the physician or the provider, but to actually augment, enhance the art of medicine in the in the patient care room. And then the other part of it is that we have to be willing. I think there's a lot of discontent, discontent, a lot of dissatisfaction in healthcare. I think we have to be willing to have very honest conversations about what our expectations are for our current physicians and for our future physicians about where healthcare is going, so that we we bring those providers in with realistic expectations and with the full understanding that they are both, they are three things. They are physician artists, that they're expected to have a very human, very important relationship. They are business people. They need to understand that every clinical decision they make has an economic impact, and they need to be really profound scientists in the sense that they need to be able to leverage the very best for their patients. So it's not one thing, but all three simultaneously. Right, and that reinforces the the theme of the work. So, Dr. Wright, we're at our time boundary, so I'm genuinely very appreciative for this overview. So thank you again for your time. Thank you, David, and for the invitation.
You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.